what does, what does God, and I'm sure many of you have asked this that many times in your life, what does God want with your life or my life? Surely God wants me to do great things for him, doesn't he? Isn't that why he put me on this earth? I'm sure many of you prayed this. What does God want me to do? What, why am I here? Why did he make me? For many, until they have that definitely answered, they will feel lost or even useless as they try to figure out their place in this very confusing world. And this world is confusing in the messages of what is success or why are you here. They range from all over. And so it's hard to know what we're about. Why are, why are we on this earth? Is it possible to know with precision what God's will is for me? And I'm going to argue today that he's made it very clear, incredibly clear. God doesn't want to keep us in the dark, but I think sometimes when he tells us what he wants from us, we want more. We would like a life that is somebody great. I want to be doing great things, whatever that means, but that's what I want. By nature, human beings are glory hunters and they're rarely satisfied with their place in this world. Some of you would say, well, I don't know what he wants with my life. I'm sure you're there. I really don't know. Well, today you're in luck. I'm going to tell you exactly why you're here. But some of you won't like it. If you could turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to read together verses 1 through 12. I have a fear about this passage. Here's my fear. My fear is that this passage will hit too close to home for many of you. And when scripture hits too close to home, a lot of people just, they just don't listen. They kind of just say, yeah, whatever, God. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope also you don't say, God, can you give me something more? I want more. I want my life to be better. I want to walk the hero's path. I want the glory. And this isn't about that. It's actually about pleasing him in a very simple way. So if you can, stand with me as we read verses 1 through 12. And the title of this is The Will of God for You Today. Starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, and this may be the most important verse in this section. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed 
is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to inspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And this is God's will, so please be seated. We are at the very beginning of verse 1. It begins with finally. So what we're, what we're doing is we're transitioning. The first half of the book was an encouraging plea to the Thessalonians. How much he missed them, how much he loved them, how much he longed to be with them. Then we had a prayer right in the middle last week. And now we're going to transition into instruction. So Paul really went from, man, I miss you guys, I love you guys. Now I want to urge you to not only take what we taught, but do it more and more. And you'll see that twice. Keep doing it. I urge you to keep living this more and more. What does he want to encourage them to do? Well, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he prayed this. He prayed that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. So he's now going to talk about how he wants the Thessalonians to live a life that's blameless in holiness. So his instruction is on being blameless and holiness. And so he wraps all these first three verses, which I'm going to call transition verses, into this statement on verse 3. Here is the will of God. For this is the will of God. And the answer is, what is the will of God? Your sanctification. It's your sanctification. And he said, I know many of you are doing this, and I pray you do it more and more. He's trying not to be too mean, but he wants, he's serious, because in verse 1 he says, I'm going to urge you in the Lord Jesus. I really want you to think through this. And honestly, you want to talk about a verse that is very relevant, this is it. And so I'm going to urge you, which means I'm going to really ask you, please listen. Because there's one verse in here, I don't think we take it as serious as it is. So what he's going to urge them to do is to start living their life in holiness. You could say it like this. He's asking them to be sanctified. What is sanctification? Here's a defini definition I came up with from the first three verses. Sanctification is a life that pleases the Lord and increases in holiness. So he'll keep saying more and more. It's not just I believed in Jesus and I'm done. It increases. It continues. You never arrive, in other words. So it's a life that increases in holiness which makes a good impression on God's name concerning God to the outside world. So to those people who are outside the church and they watch your life, they should say, you know, I want to know that God. He's, he seems like he gives you a good life. It's called bringing glory to him. So that's the definition of sanctification I'm, gonna, I'm going to use from these first three verses. And what I'm going to tell you, if you live a life like this, you're going to be successful. Your life will be a success. That's why you're here. You are here on earth to worship God by holy living. People are always wanting to know, what is a successful life? What is a successful life? Is it fame? Being famous, you know, getting my 15 minutes of fame. Man, if I'm on a TV show or commercial or, wow, did you see how many hits I had on Facebook? I'm famous. See, I'm successful. 
I don't think God thinks that's successful. Is it fortune, having a big paycheck? Is it happiness? Is it toys? So the first thing I'd say is, if you live this, your life is a true success. Truly. Sanctification also is meaning being set apart for God. The Greek word is hagiasmas. It's basically the idea is that God has set me apart so I can be fully devoted to Him. It's sort of like, the best illustration I ever heard, it's kind of like when you go on a date with your wife, let's say you go on a date with your wife, and you save up money to take her out on an anniversary dinner. And so you call up the Amway Hotel, and you get a nice, nice spot at Ruth Chris's Steakhouse. They give it a window seat, and they reserve it for you at 7.30. So they get the tablecloth all nice and white. The napkins are folded. Silverware shined. And that is reserved for you at 7.30. Nobody else. So when you come there, you say, I have a reservation. They said, yes, right this way. Being holy, being set apart, is you are being reserved. You're being put aside for God to come and eat at the table of your heart. So stop having Satan eat there. He's a dirty slob of a pig. Let God eat there. God made you holy. He made that tablecloth clean. The plates are clean. So he can live in your life. That's really what holiness means. But the concept of holiness is really not normal to people. They don't like it. Even during the writing of this, one commentator says, nowhere in known pagan literature, and by pagan literature in verse 5, he's talking about the Gentiles who live in passionate lust. Those are pagans at that day. And this writer says, nowhere in known pagan literature is anyone concerned with holiness or holy living. Being set apart for the purpose of God was an utterly foreign concept to most people of that day. And I'm going to argue it still is. People just don't set aside their life to live for God. Like, you've got to be kidding me. You want me to live for God. Really? Yeah. Yep. The concept of holiness really first started in Leviticus. So you have the first book is Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Leviticus was a book written for the Levites, the priests, talking to them of how to give instructions for holy living. Leviticus 19.2, Moses writes, Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And so in this passage, there's going to be a lot of what I would say. He's actually writing to Gentiles who went to the synagogue, and there's going to be a lot of reference back to the Levitical codes, which are the holiness behavioral codes of 18 and 20 in Leviticus. We're not going to go into it, but that's where this passage comes from. But look at verse 4. Verse 4, each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, for God has not called us impurity for impurity, but holiness. And then if you look at verse 8, look how he describes the Spirit of God. He gives him a title. He calls him the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, he's talking about walking properly or walking the life you've been assigned to live. That's basically holiness. So holiness is the theme of this passage, and your objective is to live and keep living more and more holy life. So you're like, so how do I do that? Do I walk around like a pious priest and talk like that to everybody? Hello, I'm holy. 
good to see you, and you say God like this. I remember a preacher would say God, and instead of saying God, he'd say God. That's the holy way to say God. Thee art thou. See, I'm holy. That's not what he's talking about. Is he talking about how I dress? Is it women have skirts below their ankles, and guys are always wearing a tie? You know, kind of talking like that. Is that holy? What is holiness? Two words. That's it. Just two words. You ready? Very simple. It's very simple. The first word we're going to talk about is abstain. The second word we're going to talk about is aspire. That's holiness. If you can abstain and if you can aspire. And if you get that, then you'll start understanding what it means, what God wants you to do, His will. So the first of all, we're going to talk about God's will for you is Two, according to verse 3, look at verse 3, God's will for you is to abstain from sexual immorality. In verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In that phrase, you guys know God. You're given the great things of God. Live different. The Gentiles, they they have a, in a sense, they have an excuse for why they live the way they do. They don't know God, but you do. That's the the motive behind that statement in verse 4. I have often heard people complain about the church. Seems, they say, the only sin that bothers us, bothers the preacher, is sexual sin. Why do preachers, well, that's all they talk about. And the reason why is because we need to, to be honest with you. Sex is a sacred act, and we as human beings have a tendency to violate it every day. It's sacred. It's set aside. It's holy. It's not to be an act where Satan comes and eats like a pig. You could also say it's also the most powerful human urge after hunger and thirst. That's why we have to talk about it. Some people want me to talk more about gluttony, but if I talked about gluttony, they'd kick me out of the church. So, I'm not going to talk about gluttony. But I'll tell you what, talking about sex, this has never been truer than in our culture. So, Paul says, abstain. That means keep a far distance from it. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, when that urge is coming up inside of you, he says, flee, run, get out of there says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, flee. And I believe that statement, flee, has never been more needed than now. Don't keep lingering on those pictures you see on Instagram that are going to cause you to think. Turn it off. You know it, and I know it. It's not that, here's the deal, it's not that sex is wrong. It's that it's wrongly used. And Paul's imploring us to abstain from the wrong use of it. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 is, um, the best way to put it, it's a dad talking to his sons. And he's talking to them in a very fatherly, a fatherly way. I can imagine a dad maybe talking to his sons over a campfire or before they go to bed. And he brings them and tells them, I want to tell them a story. It's a story that he has witnessed many times. And let me read it like I'm a father reading to his sons. And so it's Proverbs 7 starting in verse 6. And here's what the kind father says. 
For at the window of my house, this is verse 6, for at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice. So he's peeking through lattice, you know, that the wooden frame where he can see holes. and Like he's spying, he's looking around the town through the lattice. And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the young or the youths, a, uh, a young man lacking sense. Here's a fool. Let me describe a fool for you. He's passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, when the sun's going down in the evening, where the shadows are long is what he means when you can kind of hide in the dark. The time of night and darkness, and behold, there she is. The woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now she's in the street. Now she's in the market. She's at every corner. She lies and she waits. She's kind of like a snare, threading to snap. She seizes him. And kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, Ah, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, mm, aloes, and cinnamon. Come. Let us take our fill of love. Till morning, let us delight ourselves with love. My husband, he's not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a big bag of money with him. At full moon, he'll come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Abstain. That's what that means, abstain. Why? For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to the dead. That's Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death. Oh, that's scary. So then the next question, okay. So we go back to Thessalonians. I know what abstain means. What is, what is sexual immorality? If I love somebody, it's not sexual immorality, it's love. Well, sexual immorality, this word is a Greek word, porneia, where we get the term pornography from. But porneia, it covers every type of sexual trespass or sin. And we get the porneia laws from Leviticus 18, 6 to 23, Leviticus 20, 10 to 21, and here's what they include. They include fornication. That would be sex outside of the marriage, a man and a woman outside of the marriage having sex. That would include homosexuality, a man with a man or a woman with a woman. That would include incest, sex in the immediate family, and that would include bestiality, sex with animals. 
And if you don't think that's like, why would he talk about that? Because people think that and they still think that. All are forbidden and therefore we are called to flee from them. By the way, often you'll hear Jesus never talks about homosexuality. Never. Never talks about it. He never talks about incest either. But what Jesus does talk about is the law. So when he says he has come to fulfill the full law, he has, he has come to cross every T and dot every I with his life to fulfill it, he's including the Levitical laws of pornea. However sophisticated voices a reason that we live together, they smile softly at our at our, what I would call, um, oh, old-fashioned ways. Our um, antiquated thoughts. They, and they say, what's the harm? In fact, culturally progressive teaching since the 60s in the famed sexual revolution teaches that, and here's how they teach it, abstinence is, it's repressive. It's Bad for our fragile psyches and virtually impossible for people. So instead of saying no to harmless dalliances, we should encourage healthy sexual experimentation and not be so stunted or repressed. And if you do, you are basically asking people to deny their nature. So give them some condoms and send them to the hotel. But look at verse 4. Verse 4. He says, starting in verse 3, your sanctification that you abstain from sexuality. And in verse 4 he says, each, of, each one of you know how to control his own body. In other words, you have the ability to control your body or your vessels. Your vessels are the instruments that God has given you and you own them so you can control them. It's your property. Gain control over your passions so you don't follow According to verse 4, the past, verse 5, the past of the Gentile. They're ignorant of holy living. They don't know. One writer actually said, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, would sound absurd to the Greek culture at that time. When mistresses were kept for the sake of pleasure, concubines were kept for the daily care of persons, and wives were just there to bear legitimate children. And Paul is saying, no, we are called as Christians to live to a higher standard. And he is assuming something. That this call is not an impossibility. Meaning, we are not just dogs in heat. Who can't control our impulses. We are image bearers. Made in the image of God himself. People who are to bring glory to his son. It's like, we're not the, like when the elephant man, if you ever saw a movie, they got the hunchback, and he's got this hunchback, and everybody's looking at him as a freak, and they get him in the corner, and he says, I am not an animal. We're not animals. We're not monkeys. And even more than that, according to verse 8, look at verse 8. God gave you his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, in the qualifying word, is holy. So holy, the one who's set apart, can set you apart because he lives in you. 
He's kind of the one that cleans the tablecloth and folds the napkin and brushes the silver in your heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I beat my body, make it my slave, so after I've preached to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize, and beating his body is self-discipline. Well, what if we don't? What if we don't? What if we choose not to? Everything I said, you're just like, I don't want to listen to you. I, I kind of like the culture. Okay, if you don't, uh, let's not, I don't want to talk about it. Let's not talk about it. But the problem is Paul does, so I have to talk about it. Okay, so we have in verse 6, here's a, let me read this verse for you. I'm going to read it very slow, because this is a verse I don't think you know, where you haven't really let it sink. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, the matter of pornea, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly, that means with seriousness, warned you. This is a scary verse. Apparently, some pornea was going on at the church, and Paul had a moral obligation that he says here to warn. And the reason he warns is because God cannot be mocked. He's always watching. The situation here in the church isn't specifically known. It's alluded to something's going on, but it's not given. But I want to kind of describe for you how the Bible views behavior that's wrong. So I first want to start what's right. So God has... Here's like, this is kind of a, I've designed this so you can see it. So according to Hebrews 13.4, the marriage bed is to be kept pure. Or the idea is the marriage bed is where purity takes place. The marriage bed is where God has sanctioned the place for procreation. That means having kids and pleasure. It means the enjoyment of sex. As one writer said, if procreation did not include pleasure probably not as many of us would be around. And I agree completely with that. But this also assumes, this assumes something. It assumes everything outside of this is not pure. So you can look at it like this. So God has kind of put an umbrella or a covering over this behavior and then he's delineated boundary lines on the side. Do not go past. Because he's got a set marriage apart. It's the holy act. It's the reserved table, per se. And then so Jesus delineates these boundary lines in Matthew 5.28. And Matthew 5.28 is pretty, uh, well, I'll read it for you, and I'll show you how specific he is about these boundary lines. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, Jesus is saying, you know where the boundary lines start? In your heart. So you've got to kind of consider that. That's his design right there. And then everything outside of that is sinful. So that means wrath is reserved for it. And the wrath that he's describing in this, in this passage is called vengeance. So vengeance happens to everything outside of that. Vengeance is defined as retribution sent from God on willful trespass. And the willful trespass, according to verse 6, is 
a sexual trespass against one another. And because of that, Jesus is the one who is the avenger. Because it says, because the Lord, that's Kyrios. Remember last week we said Kyrios is Jesus himself. So Jesus is the avenger, the one who will bring wrath. I read something very interesting about um, this transgression. It could mean in this situation a man took another man's wife or it could also mean a man trespassed against his a, a, a sister in Christ. But here's what I found interesting as I did some research this week. C.S. Lewis writes this. Next to the sacrament of communion, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him and her, Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. So in other words, when you violate the purity of another, you are violating a holy thing. That's scary to me. So as a result, as it says here, vengeance is administered and it comes as wrath, the fiery angry of God. So then you could hear me, be listening and say, do you mean to tell me Jesus is going to send wrath on all sexual sin? Jesus loves me. That's what I'm told. Jesus loves me regardless of how I behave. The truth is, Jesus loves me absolutely, but in spite of how I behave. Not as I behave, but in spite of. And if you don't think I'm telling the truth, I, I just want to bring you to Revelations chapter 2. I think it's important for you to look at it. Revelations chapter 2. Revelations is a book that is written to seven churches. And there's a letter to the churches that Jesus sends to different churches. He sends one to a church called Thyatira. And they had a big problem in Thyatira. As you'll see in chapter 2, in verse 20, they have this woman there. And they give her, I don't think her name's Jezebel, but she probably had the spirit of Jezebel. Jezebel's an Old Testament scary woman. And Jezebel um, would, came into this church and said, I'm a prophetess. That means God has given me visions, and I see things. But her teaching seduces the Christians to practice pornea, sexual immorality, and also sacrificing or eating food that sacrificed idols. And so verse 21, Jesus doesn't like this. Jesus actually wrote this. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus is writing this? Yeah, Jesus also writes this, verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation or pain unless they repent of her works. So Jesus is saying, I see it, and you know what? I'm going to render judgment. So how does Jesus do this? Because this is where it gets kind of scary. How does he do this? How does he render judgment? vengeance. I believe there's two stages to it. And I got this from Romans 1, 18 to 32. The stage one is God gives people over. He lets them act. He gives you freedom. And sexual transgression has a progression. It first starts with guilt. Guilt, you feel this internal, in, internal turmoil from crossing a line. And then guilt transitions into shame where you feel dirty. And you feel kind of 
ah, I don't know if I'm acceptable anymore. You feel like you are not good. And then bitterness comes in. And bitterness is where you feel anger at the person that committed the act with you. So, for instance, in our culture, a lot of times women who want to just be loved will actually give in to sex to show that they love them. But after time, that man kind of will use that woman and will leave. And then women are now getting mad at men for that. So there's bitterness between genders. Women hate men. And then on the other end, men will sleep with women and basically think that's what they're there for, then they will mistreat women and think they're just objects. So men will have bitterness towards women and won't respect them the way they deserve. That's wrath, believe it or not. And then it ultimately ends in a hardness, and this is a hardness towards the person of God, where you want to run from God, you get angry with God, and you even blame him for making you the way you are. If God wouldn't have made me like this, I wouldn't have sinned. But like I said, God put that in you so you will procreate in the proper context. So the second part then is stage two, and this is where it gets scary, is because sexual behavior has chemical responses which lead to addictions. And the things with addictions is you need to do more and more of that action for it to be as pleasing as it was the first time. And when you do more and more of that action, it then becomes perverted. And perversion has taken over our culture. Perversion has come in the form of same-sex attraction, gender confusion, genital mutilation. You know, where boys who are 16 want to be girls, so they get body transformation and they regret it. And then bestiality. And again, that's scary when it gets to there. And it's getting there. Then after perversion is destruction. Ultimately, perversion rots the soul and damages the body. That is why Paul writes at the end of verse 6, I solemnly warned you, please don't. It's not that he's a hater. It's not that the church are haters. We don't hate people. We don't hate, we don't hate their act. In a sense, what we hate is we hate the results of their actions. It's killing them. It's killing them. And if they were honest about it, deep down in their heart they know. But what they're trying to do is get you to justify it with them. But in their heart, shame is a crazy thing. It makes you angry towards God and angry towards people who are trying to live right and projects this idea that you are a hater. You're not a hater. You want people to live a great life. I don't want you to be in the land of vengeance. That's the first thing for God's will is for you to abstain. Second is to aspire. To aspire. To make it your aim, your goal. And what is that? Well, look at verse 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have taught, been taught by God. So he's basically reaffirming what he said in chapter 1. You guys, you guys really love each other. It's spreading all through Macedonia. That's what he said in verse 10. For that indeed is what you're doing, all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you. Here's what we want you to do, brothers. Do this more and more. So don't stop loving each other. And the way you do that is verse 11, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here's what he wants you to do. Aspire to live a quiet life. Now here's the problem. When you read that, so you mean to tell me God doesn't want me to talk anymore? So I just go around the world and just, 
don't say anything. Actually, it might be good if a lot of us quit talking, but that's not what he means. Does he mean he wants us to be Amish people who are almost too terrified to talk to people who aren't from our church? <laughs> they, might, they might take me over. You know, is that what this means? No, what this means, quiet in this passage, means to live among your community as a true contributing member. Or in other words, not becoming a nuisance and not intruding on the lives of others by being a burden to them. This is not a political statement. Because this is not a political policy statement that, you know, see, one, one side of the government believes this, one does. That's not what this is, but it's a personal heart assessment. Are you living in community and love, doing your fair share towards others? In fact, this mandate comes from Leviticus 19, 9 to 10. And in that section, it talks a lot about Work hard with your crops, but leave the outside fringes open for the poor. Take care of the immigrant. Take care of them. So in a way, this isn't, this isn't about taking care and not taking care about the poor among you. That's not the problem here. So what's the problem in this church? Idleness. Idleness is the problem. It was such a problem for the Thessalonian church that he had to address it again in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, idleness. Idleness is when a person sponges off the rest of the group. And instead of being a positive contributor, they become busybodies, gossips, lazy, taking from the community without ever giving back in equal measure. These people are like leeches on a healthy body. Instead of having their genuine needs met, they often occupy the rest of the group, not just taking care of their needs, but their selfish wants. And that often turns the group from taking care of legitimate needs in the community, which there are. One commentator, Gordon Fee, writes, This admonition by Paul is not for the whole of the group, because most are already doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, as you can see here in verse 10, for that, indeed, what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So he's giving, he's not saying the whole group's a bunch of slackers, but he's saying there's a few in the group which are really leeching off of everybody else. They are not living in mutual love, he continues, but rather they are taking advantage of the love of the rest. That's idleness, is when you take advantage of the love of other people. People who are genuinely gracious and benevolent. I call these people commune killers. There's a lot of, I, I know people that want to live in commune. You know, let's live in commune where we share each other. And that's not good or bad. That's not necessarily right or wrong. Communism isn't necessarily right or wrong. You know, their statement is from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. It would really it'd work fine if everybody had a good heart. But the problem is there are hearts that are dark. Those people who are always sponging. It's the roommate who never cleans the dishes. I lived in this house in college. I had eight guys in this house. And we had this simple rule. We had a little washer and we had our names up by the dishwasher or by the sink. When you eat, let's say I have a, let's say I have a plate of macaroni and cheese and I eat it and then I put some soap on it and wash it and then I dry it and I put it back into the cupboard. I'm allowed to you move my washer to the next person. 
So now he's responsible for the dishes. And so normally each guy would say, okay, it's my turn, I'll do it. But we always had this one guy. He would eat his mac and cheese and put it in the sink. Wouldn't clean it. So the next guy comes, puts his plate in the sink. And by after two weeks, this guy still hasn't done the dishes. And it's loaded up over the sink, you know, and there's roaches coming in there. And so we have this meeting. You have to do the dishes. He's like, I don't want to. So we tarred and feathered him and kicked him out of the house. No, we didn't do that. But it's that, man, everybody else is. Why don't you? Or it's that, you know, it's that son who doesn't take out the trash or the person who goes from church to church scamming benevolent offerings. And that's why they, we have organizations that we're part of to look up a person who comes to our benevolent. They give us their name and we call, we say, is their name on the registry? And that means they've been to 10 other churches asking for benevolent funds. It is speculated that certain members erroneously concluded that since Christ was about to return, they need not worry about the normal order of life and the daily routine of work. Because they were thinking, Christ has come back anytime. Paul said so. So why work? Why work? So instead of working, they spent their days meandering from house to house, busying themselves with gossip and depending on others for their living. I have met people who believe they are so in touch with Jesus that their faith alone will get them through without expending any effort. Jesus will take care of me. I just have to believe. And usually, someone else has to break their butt, break their back to feed their lazy, well, I, I just said it, lazy butt. So, I didn't say it the first service because there's more older people there and they get mad at me. But that's what's happening. People are breaking their back. So, so what do we do about this problem? Paul gives the answer. I'm going to say the answer is really found in verse 12. You want to live a life that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. So he's going to teach us how to exercise proper independence. We should all live in community, but independently in some degree. You'll see what I mean. So Paul says, while you're waiting for the return of Christ, this is the time to contribute. That's God's will for you. It's proper independence. Galatians 6.5 says, each of you will have to bear his own load. What's interesting about Galatians 6, it says there's some burdens you've got to take care of, but you also need to first take care of your own load. Take care of your own responsibility first. So how do we do this? Verse 11, the first thing we are to do is, and watch how relevant and up-to-date I am, is MYOB, man. That's a texting thing. Mind your own business. I have to text that to Jared all the time. I'm trying to study, and he's coming up to my office. Jared, MYOB. Mind your own business. Do you remember when Jesus was, he was confronting Peter. Peter betrayed him, sees him on the beach, and said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my lambs. All right, okay. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Okay, okay. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. And all that says, okay. Then Peter looks down the beach and he sees John. And he says to Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus says, you know what? What is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, mind your own business. We need to mind our own business. How do we do that? Don't compare what others have or the job they are assigned. Do your job don't be jealous. 
And remember, life is about holiness, not glory. Success is pleasing God. Second thing, don't compete. Stop trying to prove you're better. Jesus calls that pride. And Jesus is the one who made us the way we are. Corinthians says, who's the one that gave you intelligence and the ability to do what you are doing? Jesus, right? So why are you taking pride over one another? And then the third thing is don't critique. If someone has a job we don't think they deserve or they're doing something you don't like, let Jesus handle it. M-Y-O-B. And then the second thing, verse 11 says this, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. So work hard. Work hard. I believe we were made to work since creation. We have been created to work. And so when we accomplish something through our work, it is designed to bring, to bring pleasure to us. It's rewarding. It's rewarding. We are agents of God. He made us as agents to carry out and create on this earth. And there's massive what I'd call dignity and satisfaction in that. So if you are stuck at a dead-end job, it's never dead-end if you do it in holiness. Look what he says. He says, work with your hand. Have you ever just looked at your hands? These are amazing tools. They're amazing. These hands can paint. I was watching Jared. They can play the guitar. can play the piano. They can knead dough, right, Jill? She makes good cakes with her hands. She only charges $25 a cupcake, right? Get them fat. But they're worth it. You can um, sign language. You can type, write papers. But most people just do this with their hands. Click, click, click. And now we don't even need a clicker because all you got to do is voice, hey, Siri, get me Netflix so I can watch 101 shows in a row. Thank you. And so our hands just sit there. These are amazing tools. This brain you're given is an amazing tool. You're given legs. You're given muscles. And when you do things with them, there's dignity to that. There's value to that. I, one wise man once told me, if God gives you a job, that's a dignified title job, do it with humility. And if God gives you a humble job, do it with dignity. Proverbs 22, 29 is probably one of my favorite Proverbs. Do you see a man who is skilled at his work? He will serve before kings. Wow. So the question then is what is God's will for you today? Two simple words. Abstain and aspire. Abstain and aspire. And then I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. The rest of life falls into place. It just falls into place. If you are holy and you're pleasing God and he knows he can trust you, like if you're, let's say, you know how many pastors fall because of sexual immorality and then they destroy the church. If God trusts you because you're pure, he'll exalt you. Or he'll put you in a job where you're going to be working hard and everybody will notice and go, why do you work so hard? Well, I work for a person named Jesus. And it's amazing how often they'll say, 
Can you tell me about them? Because my life stinks. What is God's will for you today? Abstain and aspire. And if you do those two things, the rest of life will fall into place. Let's pray.